Does it seem like everything is politics? I don't think it should be. I think we should think about the world theologically and not politically. And that's what we're going to explore today. Why are we always tempted towards the political view of the world and what happens when we think about the world and history and the future and our neighbor and ourselves in terms of politics and not in terms of theology? We're going to resist this temptation and and rumble through it on today's edition of Cross Defense. Thanks for downloading the podcast. Here's the episode. Hey, welcome to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfinger, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Death Lutheran Church. Coming to you every Monday on Cross Defense, talking about, oh, we're, we're trying to excite the theological imagination with God's Word, reflecting on how theology is everywhere. And you know what the, you know, we often talk about, we're, you know what we're, the business here of Cross Defense is trying to fight back against theological boredom. But that's not the only enemy, by the way. There is a danger. This is a temptation from the devil to think of everything in terms of politics. Now, how, oh, man, how does this happen everywhere? I think this is this is what I want to meditate on today, I think. I'm still trying to put together. I got a couple of notes here, so we're going to see how this goes. But there is a, da- there is a danger, a real danger. That we start to think that politics is the only thing, or politics is the main thing. Especially when there's so many current events that are so flammable. I mean, there's so many things that are happening in the world today. And we're all watching these things happen. I mean, we watch the coronavirus, and the whole world all of a sudden now worrying about cooties. I mean, this is not to minimize the danger of uh, of a of a of a new and novel virus that we don't have that we don't quite understand what it is where it comes from and so forth and so on and this is not you know I don't want to minimize I don't want to minimize that sort of thing but this is a, certainly a tragedy and then on top of that tragedy comes the uh, the 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 killing of George Floyd and then the following protests and they just keep on going Every time I drive down to church, I drive by the Austin, I'm here in Austin, Texas, by the way, I drive by the Austin Police Department just to see if it's still there. I've been reading these articles about the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle. And so we hear, the, we hear the news, and then it's just, so you hear the news of what's happening, and it's a half step to where that news becomes political. It's almost instinctive. It's almost so we don't even notice it. It's just everything becomes political. And we can understand that. In fact, we, we can understand that move from events to politics. We can understand it because we can think theologically about things. And that's the goal here, that we want to see the whole world not through the lens of politics, but rather through the, through the lens of theology. We want to be able to look at the world with the eyes of Jesus. Now, there's a reason why... There's a reason why everything is going to tend towards politics. And to understand that tendency uh, towards the political fight, it's important for us to go back half a step and understand the three estates. Now, the three estates, you guys are saying, Pastor Wolfmuller, what in the world? Three estates? What are you talking about? Sounds like the name of a vineyard. The three estates is the understanding that God has created our, has ordered our human lives in three distinct realms. Now, these realms are 
important for us to consider and think about. But if you just go and Google three estates, I think this still happens. I've been trying to put enough stuff on the Internet about the three estates that when someone Googles three estates, something about Lutheran theology comes up there. You guys can go and test it because you know how this works. If I go and Google it, it like, you know, it shows up. It's it's kind of it's it's shaped towards my results. So maybe I'll get something better than. But it, but it used to be if you went and Googled three estates, the only thing that would really come up on the Internet is all this stuff about the French Revolution. Remember, going into the French Revolution, they had really, French society was kind of shaped like medieval society. And the three estates there were the the royalty and the underclass and the and the clergy. In fact, they would talk about the three estates in, in France and in medieval Europe as those who pray, those who fight, and those who work. Those who pray, that would be the the monks and the nuns and the priests, the clerical class. Those who work, those would be the farmers and and maybe the middle class, the merchants, the manufacturers, and so forth. And those who fight, that's the royalty, the upper class, the ruling class. And here's the point. In the Middle Ages and in Fran France before the Revolution, you were part of one or the other or the other. You are either one who works or one who prays or one who fights. You couldn't be part of of two or three different estates. The estates were separated from one another. That's how it was in in, in fact in medieval Germany. That's what that's what Luther was in the midst of when he was a when he was a monk. He was part of those who pray. And remember what you had to do when you joined the monastery. You had to take three vows. You had to, or a threefold vow to join the monastery. The vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Now, what is that doing? And and understand, obedience was the the vow of obedience to the particular rule that you were under. So, so when Luther joined the Augustinian monastery there in Erfurt, he took the vow of obedience to the Augustinian order and of the prior or whoever was in charge of the monastery there. They had a certain rule in the monastery that told them what to wear and how to eat and when to pray and what to pray and. And, and how, when to beg and all this sort of stuff. That was the rules. So, so that was their obedience to this particular rule. It's amazing to think about, actually. But, to, but look at the other two vows. The vow of poverty. That means I'm leaving the class of those who work, and I'm joining the class of those who pray. Uh, you, you see how it was a move from one estate to another. I'm not going to participate in the economy. I'm not going to have a job. I'm not going to own land. I'm not going to farm. I'm not going to do that sort of stuff. That, that's what really upset Luther's dad, Hans Luther, because Luther was a bright kid, and he was going to school in Erfurt to, to become a lawyer. And when Luther gave, when he was almost struck by light and makes a vow, all this sort of stuff, he goes and he goes into the Augustinian monastery. He sells all his law books. He sells all his fancy clothes. He gives us all away. His friends threw a big party for him. <laughs> in Erfurt, and you know Erfurt was like the beer capital of Germany. When you visit Erfurt, it's kind of wild. They still have this in the old buildings in Erfurt. They have these holes in the wall, and apparently they would they would put the straw sticking out the holes to indicate that they had beer because, I don't know how off track we want to get here, but because in Erfurt they had all this big dye. I don't know, there's some flower that grew around there, and so they were they were getting the dye out of this certain flower to have this certain color to dye the cloth and to get the color out they needed 
acid or urine. So they would make all this beer and give it to all the college kids, and then they would they would have the equipment that they needed, let the listener understand, to make this dye out of the flowers. So you can picture how it was when Luther's friends throw him this big party. Then he gives it all up, and he goes into this Augustinian monastery, particularly strict outside of town. In fact, when you join the monastery, they would make you sit in a room silent for like three days before they let you, they even considered you coming in there. But Luther got stuck in this room, and I think they forgot about him, or there was like a plague, and so they wanted to make sure he was extra serious. And so he stayed in there for, I think, for weeks at a time, not saying anything, till they finally goes in, and he joins the monastery. And when you join the monastery, you make a break from your job, from those who work. He's not going to be a lawyer anymore. He doesn't have any earthly possessions. And you make a break from the family. You take a vow, vow of chastity. That means you're never going to get married. You're never going to have children. And even this vow of obedience is breaking off from your parents. So the fourth commandment says that we honor our father and our mother. But when you would become a monk, now you're not to honor your father and your mother. You're rather to honor the one in charge in the monastery. Do you see it? So that, so that this siloed idea of the three estates is right there in the life of Luther. It, it, he is now part of the one that prays, and that means he's removed from the life of the state, those who, who, those who fight, and from the life of the family, those who work. Now understand this, that the three estates then is understood classically to be these silo sort of things. But one of the genius, one of the absolute genius recognitions that comes out of the Reformation is the recognition that these three estates are not, the three estates that God has created are not supposed to be independent of one another, but in fact, they're all, we, we each person is supposed to have a place in all three of them. The way it happens for Luther, historically, it's really interesting, is that when Luther realizes that the monasteries were built up on this anti-gospel doctrine, that I can be good enough to please God, then the whole structure of the monastery collapses, and it, and with it collapses the whole structure of medieval Europe, the, the, these three silos, and, and Luther is able to see, if you can imagine, like three silos built up, and when they collapse, now Luther's able to see the foundation that they were built on top of, and he recognizes recognizes that there was a, these were never supposed to be three independent uh, 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 buildings, three independent institutions, three independent silos, but that, but that all people are living in all three estates. Sometimes you hear things like people will talk about the priesthood of all believers. This is one little part of it, and that is to say that, that Luther recognized that it's not just the monks and the priests that are part of the church, but that everybody is part of the church. And there's different offices. There's the preaching office and the hearing office, but that all people are supposed to be part of the church. And and to be a Christian does not take you out of the life of work and and economy and the home life. You can be a pastor and be a father. You can be a pastor and you can be a husband. Those things are not exclusive of each other. So the whole idea of the marriage of the priests, that's this discovery of the three estates. Or the idea that a Christian can be a soldier. This is another part of this discovery of the three estates. Luther understood that the three estates were not dividing up people between those who pray, those who fight, and those who work, but rather the family and the state and the church are realms that God has created to order our life and that we live in all of them. Now, now just I, I just want to say, I mean, I'd love to find a tower 
and stand up on top of the tower and say to the whole world that's trying to figure out all this kind of crazy stuff that's going on in the world and just say, there are three estates. So many Christian commentaries, commentators on the current state of affairs, looking out at the world, I think would have so much clarity if they could get their heads around this idea of the three estates. It's so helpful. And and maybe we'd just say a couple more things about them, because, because, uh, because to understand the three estates is to understand why everything tends towards politics. But we're getting there, so stick with me. So first, how were they instituted? And second, why were they instituted? And third, what's the purpose of them? Uh, or how do they show up in our, in our lives? So first we have the estate of the... Well, I don't know, pick your first one, the family or the church. I don't know which is first. It's interesting, by the way. If you want to read more about this, if you just go to wolfmuller.co and type in three estates, you can find a post where I, I basically just collected every quotation from Martin Luther that I could find about the three estates. So I think it prints off on six or seven pages. It's, it's really wonderful reading. You can get back to the original source, so you don't have to take my word for it. You can see what Luther said about it. And when he lists them, sometimes he lists the church first. So sometimes the list is church, family, state. And sometimes he lists the family first, family, church, state. But So we don't, when we list the three estates, we could go in different orders, church first or family first. But always the state is last. And why? Well, both the church and the family were instituted by God in the Garden of Eden. When God, the family, for example, when God created Adam and Eve, male and female, he created them. He created them in his own image and in likeness, and he said, have dominion over the earth, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. A man, in fact, God says to Adam and Eve, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Do you think that Adam said, what's a father and a mother? <laughs> so you'll find out soon enough, Adam. And Adam and Eve, when the gift of marriage is the gift of family, and they're supposed to have children. How wonderful is that? And there's the institution of the family. Oh, oh, this is just beautiful. So the family is instituted in the garden. One of my favorite parts of the wedding liturgy is whenever people are getting married, and at the, at the very end of the wedding rite, you, the, the rite of holy matrimony, you put your hand on the, on the bride and on the bridegroom, and you say, May the Lord bless you with the blessing that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. <laughs> when you go to a wedding, it's like going back to the garden and seeing Eve being pulled out of the side of Adam and crafted there for him and then being brought by God to, to Adam and the two being given to one another as gifts. Oh, God be praised. It's just utterly beautiful picture. And they're given, and the two become one flesh. They're naked and they're not ashamed. That they, there's this love that's there, and that so so we have the institution of the family, and for the purpose of life, for the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying, for the purpose of children, for the purpose of help and companionship. That's also there. I'll find a helper fit for you. The Lord says to Adam after he says it's not good that you're alone. So there we have the institution of family in the garden for the purpose of propagating, supporting, and helping earthly life. And we also have the institution of the church there in the garden. It's probably best seen when the Lord puts the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right in the midst of the garden, and then he gives Adam and Eve a promise. He says, on the day that you eat of it, dying you'll die. There's a double death on the, on the day that you find yourself eating this, whew, eating this fruit. 
and Adam and Eve were to go to that tree. We can talk about this more another time, but just to be brief, Adam and Eve were to go to that tree and to believe what God said and worship him by faith. In other words, the tree was the first church where they would believe the promise of God and walk by faith and not by sight and so live forever before the Lord. So the church is instituted by God for the purpose of eternal life. The family is instituted by God for the, for the purpose of, of, of propagating and supporting temporal life. The church is instituted by God for the purpose of propagating uh, eternal life. And then comes the state, which comes maybe before the fall, but really the state as we know it in all of its forms it comes after the fall, after the garden, east of Eden. It's the, it is the creation of the sword to curb sin. So, the, so unlike the family and the church, the state comes later after the fall, and its purpose is not life but death. Now, what do I mean by that? That's what I'll tell you on the other side of the break, because we're getting there. We're getting to this idea of why everything is tending towards politics. We're answering that question theologically here on Cross Defense, and I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfenlid. But it is that break time. It'll be a short break. Stick with me. We'll be right back. St. Stephen Lutheran Church in Liberty, Missouri exists to glorify and serve God with time, talents, treasures, and telling. To connect people to Jesus, to grow in faith and love for Him, and love and care for one another. St. Stephen Lutheran Church is committed to proclaiming the good news of Jesus so that others may also believe, grow, and serve joyfully with them. If you are near Liberty, Missouri, join St. Stephen Lutheran Church for worship on Sunday mornings at 8, 9, 15, or 1030 at 205 North Forest Avenue, Liberty, Missouri. Visit TeamJesusLiberty.org to learn more. Have you ever wondered if your investments could do more? I mean, a whole lot more. This is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. When you invest with us, you not only earn a competitive interest rate, but your investment goes to strengthen Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations through low-cost loans and services. To learn more, visit lcef.org backslash invest101. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Oratio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson. You know, life is a potpourri of good experiences and really tough challenges. Through all those times you need, and so do I, the Lord's precious word and sacred music to get you through. That's what you get when you tune in to Moments of Assurance, Christ-centered songs, scripture, news items, trivia, humor, you name it. So tune in. You'll be richer for it over the noontime hour here on Worldwide KFUO. Moments of Assurance is underwritten by Mid-American Coaches. Welcome back to CrossFence. Pastor Brian Wolfie here, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church, Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church, both in Austin, Texas. Talking about, we're trying to, we're trying to talk theologically about the news. Uh, I'm trying to explain, I'm taking a long time to do it. I hope you guys are all right back there. I hope you don't have too much going on. I hope you're able to sit back, relax, enjoy the conversation. And by the way, if you want to get a hold of me, 
I mean, the be- maybe the best way to do it, if you go to wolfmuller.co slash contact, you can send me a note. I read all those notes. I almost I got down to four four emails in my inbox this morning. I think I'm back up to 70 or something crazy like that. But anyway, you can I'll write, I get all those notes. I don't have someone said I thought you had somebody go through all your email for you. Not yet. If you're interested in that job, let me know. But wolfmuller.co/contact, you can send me a note that way or if you want to communicate with me directly, if you're listening right now, and you, you have to get a note to me to try to get it on the air. I just turned on the Twitter. So anyway, it's on now. So you can send me a note on Twitter or tag me or whatever. Be At B. Wolfmuller on Twitter. I'll keep it on. We're, try, we're working our way towards understanding why everything tends towards politics and how to avoid that. And to do that, we, we laid the groundwork of the doctrine of the three estates that the Lord has instituted, the family, the church, and the state, the family for earthly life, the church for eternal life, and the state, I said the state for death. Now, what does that mean? The essential authority of the state is the authority of the sword. That's Romans chapter 13. I got a Bible here. I'll read you a few verses. But the power of the sword is the power to put to death. So essentially, you, essentially the, the state bears the sword. Here's how Paul talks in Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authority that exists are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers, attending continually this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Oh, that's good stuff there. But here, the sword, this is the business I'm talking about, the sword. The government bears the sword, and why do you have a sword? It's to kill things. Now, the government exists, therefore, to bring little deaths to prevent the bigger deaths. The government has the authority to take things away at the most extreme level to take life away. But in little bits to take parts of life away. To put you in handcuffs or throw you in prison or go and wage war and capture enemy soldiers. In fact, we often talk about the sword pointed outward. That's the army. The sword pointed inward. That's police, if you've got them, or law enforcement or, or the judge justice system and so forth. And so you have these two. Uh, so you have these, the, these, the same authority, the sword pointed in two different directions, outwardly and inwardly. And so you have the state. Now, now can, just, just if you line these three things up. The, these three estates, these three institutions, you just put them, it, just say, let's just say you're going to have a beauty, a three estates beauty contest, <laughs> okay? Like your King Ahasuerus, 
king of the Persian Empire, and you're looking for your next bride, and so you invite in the church. You say, whoa, what a beautiful institution. Look how glorious she is. She has the word of God. She has the promise of the forgiveness of sins. She has pastors and listeners. She's adorned with all sorts of good works, with faith in God and love for the neighbor. That's a beautiful estate. And then the church, and then the family comes in. Say, what an incredible estate. There's husbands and wives, there's parents and there's children, there's grandparents, there's wisdom, there's life, there's home, there's provision. They're sitting around the table eating and laughing and singing. What a beautiful estate. And then you have the state stand up and you say, whoa, that is a pointy sword. <laughs> that, those are some dirty hands. Those are some bloody boots. Mm. The state, in other words, the state is the least appealing. And in fact, let's say this pretty clearly, the least important of all the estates. You know this, that if, if you have a good church that preaches law and gospel, a pastor who cares for the people, and things are peaceful in your home, husband and wife are dwell together in peace, the children honor their parents, the parents bless their children, if you have those things, the world outside can be falling apart, the, the politics can be just going terribly, and things are going to be all right. Your life is going to be okay. But you could have the greatest government in all the world, and if things are bad in the church and things are bad in the home, then things are going to go bad for you. Now, there's one that, that the estates that matter most are the estates of the family and the, and the estate of the church. The estate of the state is, is supposed to, in some ways, be marginal. And yet, I think the state is jealous of the glory that the Lord has given to the other estates, and it always is trying to capture these, these things for itself. If you could think of the state, this is you guys tell me if you think this is helpful. The state is almost like remember Napoleon, he was so short so he'd always get on the he'd have to ride on the tallest of horses to kind of overcome the fact that he was so short. So much he would do this so much that people talked about the Napoleon complex. These tiny little short guys that are always, you know, wearing platform boots so they don't look so short. The state has a Napoleon complex. The state's always trying to puff itself up to look bigger than it is the state's always kind of peacocking around trying to trying to show off and we have to in some ways recognize that we have to say well we understand that because we understand the three estates and we understand the tendency towards power but we we have to resist it I think the Christian I think the Christian mind has to be so captivated by the family and by the church that we resist turning everything into politics. Because politics, for one, just makes us stupid. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not just be saying that to be derogatory. I mean, politics makes us stupid because it, of its essence, especially in our country, politics is practical. So... So remember how Luther talks about, here's an example, remember how Luther talks about uh, the difference between Adam before and after the fall and how he related to creation? Before the fall, Adam would look at the animals and he would, and he had some wisdom there. He, uh, he would understand their essence. 
he would he would understand why God created them the way he created them he perfectly understood them so that he could actually give them their name which was which was a beautiful representation of their essence and who they were so that Adam could see the dolphin and he could see the parrot and he could see the dog and he could see the robin and birds and he could understand them he could see them not in relationship to himself but in in relationship to themselves and to God he could understand something about them and he could name them this kind of wisdom is beautiful but then after the fall remember how Luther describes it, it's great all Adam can do is look at the animals and ask can I eat them <laughs> Now that's where that's how we are after the fall. We're just looking at the world and we don't understand anything of it, the beauty of it, the all we're just we're just looking at the world and we we say, "Can I eat it or is it going to eat me?" We're just consumed consumers. Everything is reduced to that practical level. Will it digest? <laughs> it's just this is crazy. And this is what politics does. Politics reduces everything down to this sort of base level. Can I eat it or will it eat me? Can I can I dominate it or will it overpower me? This is a basic question. And and what that does is if we let politics rule in our imagination, then we can never think rightly about ourselves or about our neighbors. Now just think think about it. Think about it. What does politics tell you to think about your neighbor? Oh, they're a democrat or oh, they're a republican. They're for me, or they're against me. They're a tool that I can use, or they're, a they're an opponent that I have to overcome. That's it. That's it. That's, this is wild. How, can, can you imagine that sort of reductionistic view of the other person? And we drive around, and we see the news, and we, just, and we automatically are making those sorts, of, those sorts of leaps. Now I know what to think about that other person or what to say about that other person because I'm thinking politically about them. That's just terrible. Now how, let's just contrast that with how the Bible would have us think about the other person. Just pick someone. If you can see someone, just look at them. Just look at them. Is there someone nearby? I'm, I'm sitting here at home, and nobody's at home with me, so I don't, maybe someone will walk by. I'll let you know if someone walks by on the sidewalk. You look at that other person, and politics has you judge them in this way, but how would God's word have you think about that person? Well, number one, they're created by God. They're created in the image of God. Can you imagine that they have that, that dignity because of the original creation? And even though the image of God is lost, it has this durative effect. Remember after the fall, when God has given some new instructions to Noah? So after the flood, after after the waters have uh, receded and the Lord is sort of restarting things with Noah, and he gives them that instruction. He says, if a man is killed by another man, then that man will be put to death. Why? Because man was created in the image of God. So even hundreds of years later, when the image of God had been lost in some ways, the Lord is saying, look, there's that my image has this durative effect that you are to treat that you are to treat every single person with dignity because of their creation now that is amazing that in itself is amazing i saw this picture so it was one of these memes on carrie's facebook that's how i see facebook by the way if you guys send me something you got to send it to carrie on facebook cuz i never look at my own thing 
It's too much. I can't. Anyway, I saw this picture. It is a girl, and she was holding up like a, uh, like a manila folder. Young girl, probably like third grade or something. And it said, the Bible teaches me that on one side. And then it said, and science teaches me that. So what did it say? It says, the Bible teaches me that I'm a sinner, that I deserve God's wrath, that I should be condemned in hell. And then the, bi the science teaches me that I'm beautiful and that I'm wonderful and that I'm meaningful and all that sort of stuff. Oh, man, does that make me mad. Because that is not what science teaches. The Bible teaches, yes, it teaches that we're fallen, but what are we fallen from? We're fallen from the image of God. <laughs> science teaches me that my life is... Science cannot teach you that your life is meaningful. Science teaches you that you're a big accident, that you're like shrapnel from an ancient explosion of stars. That the, the fact that you even recognize that you are and that you can think is a, com is a complete accident. There's no purpose in this. There's no destiny. There's no future. There's no cause. Everything is an accident. It's just one molecule bouncing off another. And if you could do math good enough, not only could you sort out the past, but you could sort out everything in the future. Because everything is one cause, one effect after one cause after another. Science does not teach you that you're beautiful. Science teaches you the fact that you see something's beautiful is a total accident. It's an evolutionary result of wanting to find the right fruit or something. I mean, it's crazy. Science teaches you. Whew. The Bible teaches us that we're created in the image of God. And not only that, it teaches us that we're fallen. This is true. We don't want to minimize this. The Bible does teach, teach us that we are fallen from this high position of being created in the image and likeness of God. And now we're subject and in bondage to sin, death, and the devil. But even there, even in the state of our fallenness, even in our total corruption, even, as Paul says, as the enemies of God, even there, God looks on us with love. And Jesus dies for us to rescue us so that not only do I look at the other person as a person who is created in the image of God I also look at the other person and I know that Jesus is their brother by his incarnation and that Jesus is his savior by their death and resurrection now how does that Luther preaches about this he says how can I possibly hurt or harm my neighbor if I know that Jesus is their brother Imagine that you have a neighbor who has a really famous brother, like your neighbor's brother is like Tom Cruise or something. You're like, wow, that guy has a famous brother. That guy. Now, so I'm going to treat him. In fact, I'm going to treat him probably with a little more deference. I don't know, by the way, why Tom Cruise came to mind. I tried. I was trying to talk Carrie into watching one of those Tom Cruise. Uh, what's that movie about the? About the t people in the future, and you got to stop the crime and everything, because you. I think that seems like a relevant movie to watch. Anyhow, so your brother, you treat the guy differently because you know who his brother is. Well, imagine if I th that guy over there is like, hey, that guy's brother is Jesus. <laughs> and I do not want I do not want that guy talking bad to his brother about me. How can I possibly treat someone poorly? If I know that Jesus is their brother and more that Jesus is their Savior and more that God the Holy Spirit is working 
to bring them the gospel and the gift of faith, and more, that on the last day they're going to be raised from the dead to live eternally in body and soul, either in life or in death. Remember, there's a judgment to life and a judgment to death. But that, that, that all flesh will be raised. Now, how about that? How, how can I possibly treat someone poorly if I know all of those things about them? Do you, see, do you see what happens if we think about people politically versus thinking about people theologically? It's a completely different way of looking at the world. Now, this has something to do, I think, with the biblical idea of seeing the world through the eyes of Jesus, which is what I want to talk about next, unless I change my mind over the break, which is coming up now. So you're listening to Cross Defense. We've got a quick break. And we're going to be back. And we're going to talk about how, how do I see the world through a different set of eyes, th through not the eyes of the politic, but through the eyes of God. We'll take that up on the other side of the break. Stick with me. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, Cross Defense. We'll be right back. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10 states, If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Find this true wisdom in Christ on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on Worldwide KFUO. Sharpen the iron of your faith together with two pastors as they take up the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the gifts of Christ crucified and risen for you. This week on Issues Etc., we'll continue our series, The Words of Scripture, talking with Pastor Will Whedon about the word gentleness in the Bible. We'll discuss Christian questions and their answers from Luther's small catechism with Pastor Peter Bender, and we'll have Pastor Paul McCain lead us in a teaching on the person of Jesus Christ in the solid declaration of the formula of Concord. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Welcome back to I told you that break was going to be short. That was really short. I didn't even have time to change my mind. I did almost forget what we were talking about because we're trying to answer this question. Or I'm trying, maybe to, thinking about this. How can we not see everything politically? And we had this example of how do you look at your neighbor? Do you look at your neighbor politically or do you look at your neighbor theologically? Now, this, how much better? How, just how much better is your life going to be? Just look at your neighbor theologically. And that's true of everything. I mean, to look at the tree theologically, to look at the world theologically, to look at the stars theologically, to look at yourself. This is law and gospel stuff, and this is tough. This is, I mean, it's tough not to understand it, but to do it, to look at yourself theologically. I mean, how do we always want to look at ourselves? We, we have this natural inclination to, to, to self-justify. I mean, this is our sinful flesh wants to look at ourself and always be making an argument for our own goodness. It's a theological view of man. That's a fleshly view of man. So we, if we look at ourselves rightly, we recognize that we are fallen and redeemed, that we are astonishingly part of the family of God, that we are baptized, that we rejoice in that. Oh, it's just incredible. <laughs> yeah. This is a better way to look at the world. Now, part of this idea of looking at the world through the eyes of Jesus 
means to look at is to also be able to see politics theologically to be able to understand things the and now this is a tricky business and I'm no expert in it I mean I'm just beginning to start to understand this but here's a, here's a way to start now this has to do this has to do with a sermon from yesterday Matthew chapter 10 and Jesus says these words he says pray that the Lord would send workers into the harvest and he says lift up your eyes the fields are ripe for harvest you get the picture you get the picture that there was this like a wheat field and the wheat was blooming I don't know if wheat actually blooms in fact if you put wheat in front of me I would not know if it was ripe for the harvest or not so urban I mean in Texas you know there's not it's cows but you know I, I don't know if a cow's ripe for harvest either either so what do I know but this is this field this wheat field ripe for harvest but Jesus is not concerned with the wheat or the field. He's looking out at the world. He's looking out at the world. He's looking out at your neighbors. He's looking out at your city. He's looking out at your friends. He's looking out at your enemies. And he sees a field that's ripe for harvest. Now there's this conflicting vision in the scripture. I mean in, maybe in, in the history. And that is, do we see the field ripe for harvest or do we see a field set for battle do we see a battlefield or do we see a garden this is one of the thing about the history of the Bible as a history of the battlefield and the garden remember Isaiah it was Isaiah chapter 1 Isaiah chapter 2 and the Lord says people were gonna be gathered up to Jerusalem and they're gonna take their swords and they're gonna bleed beat them into plowshares and they're going to take their spears and they're going to beat them into pruning hooks. In other words, the world will no longer be a battlefield. Instead, it will be a garden. Back to how it started. Not a battlefield, not a killing field, but a garden. A field ripe for harvest. Now, I think that we, because we know that the church is persecuted. I heard this terrible interview last week about the Christian persecution complex and how dangerous it is that Christians understand themselves as persecuted. It is interesting to ask the question, in fact, maybe we'll talk about that if we got time, about who is the persecuted minority, because everyone thinks of themselves as the persecuted minority, and the devil comes along in the midst of that whole idea to bring a whole load of temptations. But we know that the Christian is persecuted. If nothing else, we know that the world is against us, the, the fallen world. We know that the devil is against us, who, who seeks, or who's, who's going around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. We know that our sinful flesh is against us that we even have a battle within ourselves and and as we see things sort of devolving spiritually in our own culture as we see things falling apart as we have memory of when it used to be okay to be a Christian but now the Christians are considered haters on the wrong side of history and backwards that our views about marriage and human sexuality are considered immoral and so forth and so on and so we feel ourselves to be resisted to be to be to be ostracized to be to be diminished and even to be assaulted by the culture as we sense that our danger our temptation is to look out at the world and see a battlefield that person is against me this is the temptation to go back to that political view now Jesus does in Matthew chapter 10 say look I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves okay 
a sheep in the midst of wolves. We got the picture. A sheep in the midst of a sheep walking into a into a, 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 the middle of a bunch of wolves is not going to last long. And that's what Jesus says. Okay, this is what I'm doing. I'm sending you out there, sheep among as, as in the midst of wolves. Be as wise as serpents. Be as blameless as doves. And you think. Jesus, I don't think the doves are going to do that well in the midst of wolves either. But So Jesus sends us. But he sends us not out to battle, but rather to harvest. Jesus sees the world not as a battlefield, but as a harvest field. And Jesus sees those people that you are tempted to think of as political enemies or whatever. Jesus sees them as fields of ripe for harvest as people that he loves as souls that he has redeemed as those who that he is calling to be part of his own family that's how jesus sees the world so imagine just as to to have an exercise on this because we are tempted to look out of the stained glass windows and see all the muzzles pointed in at us all the tips of the spears all the bows and arrows pointed at us but jesus looks out there and he does, that's not what he sees at all he looks out there and he says look there's a field ready to harvest ready to harvest so there, i i think that we've lost oh how did we say this a couple of months ago We've, especially we Lutherans, I think that we've lost the expectation of conversion. That we forget that God is in the business of converting people, of claiming them, of changing their hearts, of repenting them, of turning them from death to life, from unbelief to faith. That's what God does. And that's what he did for you and for me. Now, we might not remember it because we were babies and it happened in our baptism. God be praised. It happened so long ago you can't remember. But we should know it by faith that while we were enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. And we should recognize that we ourselves were converted. We were born by nature, children of wrath, and we were born again to be children of God. And that the Lord is doing that. Constantly doing that that we should expect it, we should pray for it, we should know that that's how the Lord works. So we should look out there and see people, not according to their, to their stated enemies, to their st kind of stated opposition to the gospel, but see, see the world is ripe for harvest. Now think about Paul. Just if we, if you should need one example. Think about Paul, who was there when they were stoning Stephen, watching their jackets, who was so zealous in his persecution of the church that he went and got papers authorizing him to go to Damascus and to arrest the the, 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 the Christians, not just the, the dads, but the, but the moms and the children. You have to think that Paul's there, the Sanhedrin says, okay, you go arrest the guys, and he says, just the men? I want to arrest the wives and children, too. Paul, that's a little much, don't you think? No. I don't think so at all. I think we gotta we gotta squash this bug of Christianity. Paul was an enemy of Christ, an enemy of the church, a persecutor, perhaps the most severe persecutor of the church, the most zealous persecutor of the church. If you were to just pause the moment before, even the moment after, Paul was converted. Just pause right at that moment and you go and you take a survey of all the Christians in Damascus or wherever, and you say, Okay, who's the one Who's most likely to become a Christian? Who's the next person to become a Christian? Who's the most likely to be helpful in the Lord's kingdom? 
You know what that? Do you know who the last person on that list is? It's Paul. I mean, he is by by all accounts, he is the least likely guy to become a Christian. He is. I mean, he is. He's like Osama bin Laden, or or like Kim Jong Un, or just just pick the person who's doing the most damage to the church today. Whose whose public stance against the confession of Jesus is the most fierce. Who's the most bloodthirsty? and violent to the church. Just pick the person that's like that, that you know of. That's who Paul is. So the Lord goes to Ananias and says, I want you to go and talk to, to, to him. I want you to baptize him. And he says, Lord, he's, he's got, he's going to throw us in. I heard about that guy. He's trouble. And, and Jesus says, no, he, I've chosen him. <laughs> he's going to bear my name to the Gentiles. I have to show him how much he's going to suffer for me. He's my guy now. He's my guy now. That's what Jesus says. <laughs> and Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's still what he does. He does not see Paul as the enemy. I mean, he was the enemy. Why are you kicking against the goats? But he sees him ready for harvest. Oh, that God the Holy Spirit would give us those eyes. That's kind of fearless, courageous, bold, joyful eyes to look at the world and see it as, as a field ripe for harvest. So we, we don't need to be timid about our confession of Jesus. We understand that we are persecuted, that the, Christians, that the Christian church is persecuted, that the confession of Jesus is persecuted, that Christians are martyrs. We understand that. We see the long history of it. But that does not lead to this sort of martyrdom complex, this sort of gloominess, sort of, this sort of, uh, you, know, you know the martyrdom complex, so it's this poor me kind of self-deprecating sadness. No. We we go to our we go to all these things singing and dancing. Remember how it was with Agatha and Agnes? We I've read this quote. I wonder if I can find this for you. This, this idea that that the Christian sacrifice is always with a song. We don't we don't Gregorian chant our way through the to the lions. We dance as if we're going to a wedding because we belong to life and we belong to Jesus. And we know that, that he will use whatever it is, our joys or our sufferings, he will use whatever it is to call people into his kingdom. And that, my friends, is just a better way to see the world. Now the news is going to come on in a few minutes. The reports are going to come up tonight. You're going to sit down and talk about the current events. And the devil is going to tempt us back to this political view of the world, the political view of the neighbor, the political view of ourself, a political view of history. And we have to stand against it and say, no, no, I want to look at the world through the eyes of Jesus. And I want to stand and confess that even though I don't see it, I know that Jesus sits on the throne and that he rules and reigns all things for the sake of his church. Even though I don't see it, I want to stand and know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
I want to know that these things that the Lord has instituted, these estates of the family and the church and even the state, will be until the end, that the gates of hell will not prevail against them. And I want to rejoice in the midst of it. I want to rejoice in the midst of all this trouble. Well, that's what the Lord would have of us. <laughs> Here's the quote. If there is not a song in it, it is not a biblical sacrifice. Without a song, it is a poor me, look at the martyr go sacrifice. And those kinds of sacrifices have a very poor return. If there's no song in it, it's not a biblical sacrifice. But dear friends, there is a song that we sing, and it is a song of perpetual praise to God and to his son who sits on the throne. Oh, may God grant it for Christ's sake. You're listening to Cross Defense. And by the way, Sarah says that, or Stephanie says that the Tom Cruise movie about stopping future crimes is called Minority Report. <laughs> Were you shouting at the radio the whole time? It's the Minority Report. Hey, thanks for listening to Cross Defense. I'm so glad to have you with us. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches here in Austin, Texas. Come visit anytime. And let me know uh, what's on your mind. If this is helpful to, to, to you, maybe it'll be helpful for someone that you love. You can pass it on to them as well. You can find all the archives at kfuo.org. Thanks for listening to Cross Defense. God's peace be with you. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thanks for being part of the fun here on Cross Defense. God be praised. Glad to have you with me. Uh, again, if this was helpful for you, if there was something that you thought, oh, that was kind of nice, I think that was a helpful way of thinking about things, and you know someone else that might benefit from it, I would appreciate it if you would share the episode with them. That's how word gets around of what we're doing over here on the old radio show. And there's a lot more theology at wolfmuller.co, a lot of free books to download. We've got merch now, the Noah Family Reunion shirt. Ha! That's fun. And uh, a lot of videos and some other stuff over there. You can sign up for Wednesday Whatnot, which is my free weekly, wait, yeah, weekly email. We give away a free book. Uh, once a month as well, so that's a lot of fun. Wolfmuller.co slash Wednesday. But you can find all that stuff on the website. So hope to hear from you, and we'll talk to you next week. God's peace be with you.